This is Speaking From Water, episode 26, and it's a very special episode. I'm your host, Sean Rutke. Uh, we have a outdoorsman, a surfer, a lover of the earth, an environmentalist, and a CEO of the largest packaging company in North America. And that's not all. He is also the founder of a new earth project, which is focused on getting all of our packaging in our in our system into a sustainable manner and uh, uh, getting it out of our oceans and into uh, a place where they need to be. And that's not in the water. And uh, this podcast is focused on bringing water legends to the forefront. And today we have Wes Carter, uh, a true water legend in that regard. Uh, Wes, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be with you, man. Thank you for having me. So um, recently I saw you were, you were in La Jolla, California. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing there. Uh, yeah, in Laguna, actually. Oh, Laguna, um, excuse me. Yeah, so we um, we were uh, one of the sponsors of the Coast Film Festival uh, in Laguna Beach. Um, and the Thursday, sort of the opening of the festival, they had the first ever uh, Coast Summit. And that summit was all about sustainability. Um, and so it was a full day of panel discussions uh, with people from sort of all walks of life um, in different areas of our uh, economy, uh, discussing how uh, we as individuals and also as organizations within the supply chain can get really focused on uh, sustainability um, how we activate um, the the voices of uh, the elite athletes in the outdoor space and um, and and really work to activate the brands um, in, in surfing and in snowboarding and skiing and really all outdoor sport uh, to really lead what, what I like to call uh, the sustainable revolution. So um, a big credit to the guys out there um, who started the Coast Film Festival about wanting to incorporate you know environmental ethics into the festival and um my uh new earth director don meek who who lives in laguna uh where our new earth showroom is really spearheaded uh the coordination uh, of that summit so um it was great fun and um and uh, it's been really it's been really great to see the, the the surfing community in particular really rally behind um sustainability was there a particular film that stood out to you that you that you were able to catch you know, um, there was a few films, um, you know, the new trilogy film, trilogy, uh, trilogy, new wave um, that was uh, directed by Andy McKenzie. Um, we had a, a, an affiliation with with that film. Um, actually, a New Earth project uh, helped produce the, the, the behind the scenes, the making of that film. Um, so we were really, really familiar with with all all they had going on and um really incredible cinematography and a lot of drone footage of surfing um uh, from around the world uh with with three incredibly gifted surfers and um so uh, that film was was certainly special um and then um another uh a professional skier uh, a woman named uh, Amy Ingerbretson um uh, presented a film called The Hypocrite which was really about um, her realization as uh, an outdoor athlete, you know, that she's out there talking a lot about climate change and the impacts of climate change and what she's seeing in the backcountry. And she's talking a lot about 
how do we impact pollution and, you know, really presenting all these environmental ethics. But at the same time, she's acknowledging that, you know, it feels a little hypocritical because I'm riding on helicopters and I'm driving uh, snowmobiles in the backcountry and I, I've got a pretty significant carbon footprint uh, myself. And um, it was a film really about the, you know, where where does personal responsibility begin um, and, uh, and, and also where does it intersect with um, a supply chain, you know, providing products where it's not just up to individuals to make personal changes. Um, and, and that's, um, I thought that film was really powerful. Um, it's, it started off a, a lot of this sort of like, wow, I really feel bad. I really feel like a hypocrite, but you know, the way that the film, um, ended was sort of this realization that, and this is my firm belief as well, that in order to solve these really big problems, it really is not about individual human beings, you know, making these radical changes to the way they operate in the world. You know, it, it really is about the companies, the, the companies in the supply chain shifting and, and environmental ethics becoming a fundamental part of how all companies go to market and beginning to provide environmentally friendly, balanced products, materials, services, uh, to individuals, you know, so we can all continue to do the things that we love um, without having such a huge environmental impact, you know. So um, I really felt like where that film landed um, is exactly how I feel about uh, how this this needs to to progress in our world. And really, it goes to the heart of what you're doing, which, Wes, is so, so impressive because the more I've dug deep into the story that that you come from, where you come from, where your grandfather um, started, and and then your father took the company, and then where where you've uh, taken the rings is is absolutely um, a phenomenal tale. Uh, can we can we go there real quick? Um, I'd like to for you to kind of um, give us give us a um, uh, homage to your grandfather who started this company not with the mission of of making um, uh, packaging, but fighting racism, and um, tell us a little, a little bit about him. Yeah, my grandfather was uh, was an amazing guy. Um, he uh, he grew up with virtually nothing. Um, you know, in a teeny little town outside of Charlotte. Um, you know, his father was a part time mechanic. Um, but my grand my grandfather, you know, went, went to a, a one room schoolhouse. Um, and he had, had along the way, a teacher that really believed in him, uh, thought he could be a writer. Um, and, uh, to make a long story short, my grandfather was the first kid in his high school to ever go to college in the history of his high school. Um, and he was able to get into the university of North Carolina where he studied to be a writer. Um, by the time he got out of school, he wanted to start his own newspaper, um, and so he moved to a small town in uh, southeastern North Carolina called Tabor City, which is just sort of inland of Myrtle Beach in Wilmington. Um, and he started this little weekly newspaper originally just reporting on tobacco farming news because that was really the only news that there was in the southeast uh, during that period of our history. Um, but pretty quickly, my grandfather became aware that the Ku Klux Klan was really active in that community. Um, and my grandfather just left Chapel Hill where he'd gotten this liberal arts education and was really inspired by a lot of the people that he came into contact with there. And um, he was also a power of the pen, God and country kind of guy. And 
he just felt like there was no place in this country for a vigilante group like the Klan enacting enacting their own form of justice on people. And he took it upon himself to fight the Klan with his newspaper. So he wrote scathing, you know, editorials condemning their activities. Um, and it was a pretty harrowing experience for him. Um, they threatened to kill him. They hired a hitman at one point. They threatened to kidnap his children. They threatened all his advertisers. Um, and, um, you know, everyone he knew told him to stop. You know, every, I mean, everyone was super scared for, for his personal safety and the safety of his family. But my grandfather never relented. Um, and he, he, he really believed he was on a mission um, that was, that was inspired, you know, by spirit. And, um, and the end result was his editorials got picked up by a lot larger newspapers like the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer. And eventually the FBI contacted him and said, we would like your help to infiltrate the Klan, which is exactly what they did. Um, and, uh, uh they were successful in, uh, arresting over 300 Klansmen, uh, including the Grand Dragon of the Carolinas Ku Klux Klan. And, and that that really broke their back. They were never the same organization in the Southeast. And my grandfather uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for meritorious public service in 1952. He was the first weekly newspaper to ever win a Pulitzer, and he was 32 years old at the time. So uh, that was really the beginnings of Atlantic. Um, a weekly newspaper winning a Pulitzer for fighting the Klan. Um, we're obviously a much different organization today. We actually still print that little newspaper every week. Um, but... Um, but, you know, the thing I love about my grandfather's story is it really set the tone for our organization, um, the the core values of the organization, the ethics of the organization um, were, were really um, stamped, you know, uh, right from the very beginning. Um, and um, we've had some people point out to us that today that it's, it's sort of unique that a company that was founded uh, fighting for, for civil rights uh, during that period of our history is today in the era of climate change and plastic pollution fighting for environmental rights. Um, so there is, as his grandson, there's some synergies there. Um, I also have to give a nod to my father, Rusty. Um, my, you know, Rusty's still our CEO today. I'm the president of Atlantic. But my dad really took the company on in the early 70s. And um, it was because of his vision that we really evolved from this small weekly newspaper and paper supply house to a major you know, packaging company that we are today. Um, my dad built the company uh, over the next five decades into um, into the powerhouse that it is today. And um, yeah, I like to say, I mean, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and um, and today, the work that we're doing is um, is really important. You know, we're we're working to try to to uh, wake the, the supply chain up. You know, not just us, but with other with other partners as well. And, and really say that you know the environmental footprint and the impact of the packaging industry has been pretty devastating. And it's time for this industry to really acknowledge that it wasn't intentional. You know, we didn't, we didn't intend for this to happen, but it did. And we have to acknowledge that and then make commitments to developing new materials that are more circular, um, that are more, um, earth friendly, earth digestible, you know, recyclable, um, because those things have not been, um, a part of packaging development historically. You know, people were not, you know, companies were not developing packaging for recycling. People were not developing packaging for circularity, compostability. Um, and, um, but we believe that once we start to move in that direction, you know, that we say, hey, uh, these are fundamentally important um, parts of packaging development um, that we can, we can shift this, this global 
plastic pollution crisis uh, pretty significantly. You know, it's it's one of those global problems that actually I believe is very solvable. And, and it's hard to say that about a lot of global problems these days. When when did you find your love for the water? Can, can you put a put a time on that? Man, <laughs> I probably can't actually. Um, I like to say salt water was the backdrop for my life. Uh, certainly my youth. I grew up um, in Riceville Beach, North Carolina from the time I was two or three years old. And um, I just don't ever remember life without the Atlantic Ocean in the background. Um, so I was on a, a boogie board, you know, when I was a young kid and a surfboard shortly thereafter um, and did a lot of boating and a lot of offshore fishing. And um, yeah, I mean, salt water has just been a big, big part of my life um, and continues to be to this day. And you know, so I've got a great passion for um, for the ocean life. Um, and and quite honestly, I didn't ever really see how that had anything to do with my career. Um, for, for most of my early career, you know, my love for the outdoors and not just, you know, ocean. I mean, I've been a lifelong backpacker and hiker and uh, spent a lot of time in the out west and, you know, I'm a skier and a snowboarder and, um yeah, I mean, if it's outside, I tend to, to to love to do it, but I never really saw how those passions for the outdoors would intersect with my professional life um, until until sustainability happened. And, and I really saw that there was a real opportunity to channel those passions uh, into my professional work and 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 maybe actually have a have an impact um, on on a lot of these problems that I was seeing firsthand. You know, as an outdoor person, I was I was seeing a lot of the impacts of of our industry firsthand. When was that moment where you were in the position you were and you had the the aha and a, a new earth was was born into your mind? Yeah, you know, I like to say this too, that, that it wasn't a strike of lightning. There was not one moment. There was a series of moments over a couple of years. Um, but, you know, once I got into my mid-30s, I started taking a lot of surf trips, you know, um, as as we surfers do. Um, nothing better than piling up with your buddies and, you know, going to a, an exotic place with great waves and maybe a few less people than your home break. And um, so I was traveling to, you know, Central America, to the Caribbean. Um, I did a boat trip to Indonesia um, on my 40th birthday. And on um, more and more, I was seeing a lot of plastic pollution, you know, and I remember noticing that a lot of the things that I were seeing, what was seeing in the water was, was packaging, you know, and it wasn't all packaging that I sell, but it was a, you know, a part of the supply chain that, that, that you know, we're a part of or an integral part of. Um, and I also had read um, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia, his book, Let My People Go Surfing. And he talks a lot about you know, hey, when I was, I always assumed I would retire early and move to the South Pacific and just live the good life. Um, and he said, I, I, but I recognize that all the places that I love to go were being decimated by pollution and, and climate change. And he said, you know, I, I want to take this organization that I've built and, 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 and utilize it for something really good for the world. You know, that's more important than, than my retirement. Um, now, I'm a long way from retirement age, but I remember thinking like, you know, like that's a remarkable thing that this man has chosen to do. And, and I saw that Atlantic had a similar, maybe even more um, impactful opportunity because of how integrated we were in all these different areas of supply chain. I mean, we support companies in every single manufacturing vertical from food, beverage, building products, e-commerce, medical, 
um, automotive, uh, aerospace. I mean, you name it, anybody making anything. So I was like, well, if we can help, you know, if we can help these large consumer products companies and retail brands make these transitions, maybe have a global impact. And I think that was, that probably was the biggest strike of lightning moment is realizing that we have a seat at the table with the largest consumer products companies in the world. They already trust us with their packaging needs. And if we can start to promote sustainable packaging and not only promote it, but help facilitate the transition by making it economical, because that that always is the biggest barrier is like, how do you make these changes in a way that is economically viable for the brands um, and ultimately the consumers, you know, because a lot of the costs are going to get passed along to consumers. Um, and, and we certainly don't want that. So um, I just saw a really interesting, intriguing role for our company to play. And um, as that vision continued to take shape, um, I started talking about it a lot publicly that our industry needs to do this. You know, we've got to wake up. You know, I felt like our industry had had an intentional blind spot for a long time, you know, where the plastic pollution crisis was being created by the supply chain that we were all a part of and no one was talking about it. No one was doing anything about it. It was just sort of over here in the corner. And um, I felt like the first thing we had to do was really acknowledge that problem and, um, and then commit to making those changes. And so, um, and you asked about a new earth project. I mean, like I said, I, I'd gotten real public in our industry in particular and on social media, like LinkedIn, talking about sustainability and sustainable packaging had to be a priority for, for, you know, everyone in the packaging. And um, there was a guy that uh, I got connected to who was in the marketing business. And he said, Hey man, I have always thought that the surf industry and surf culture um has a radical level of influence, you know? And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, if I look back over my entire life, even since like the seventies and eighties, you know, like what, what phenomenon culturally has had the biggest impact on the way people dress and the way people talk and the things people, you know, like you could argue surfing is, you know, had a pretty big impact. Um, and he's like, I really think sustainability and surfing go hand in hand. And I know you're a surfer. And he said, you know, Early in my career, I worked at Hurley back in the 90s, and I worked with a guy named Peter King, who's now a photographer in Hawaii, and he's been really wanting to make a documentary series about surfing with a purpose, uh, and he's like, I think you guys are really likely partners. I think there's a partnership opportunity here, so I was intrigued enough about that that you know Peter and I hopped on a phone call on the 26th of December of 2020, and um, we said, you know, what if we try to inspire the surfing industry, the brands in surfing to lead the sustainable revolution, uh, we'll help them create all these sustainable packaging, you know, whether it's for apparel or surfboards or other types of gear, um, we'll, we'll create documentary series telling these really beautiful stories of this transition of this big shift. Um, we'll, we'll invite the, the pro surfers, the elite athletes to really be our, our, our voices, um, to help activate it. Um, we'll get to hear their stories from their travels all over the world. And, um, and uh, that was the idea. And, and the surf community has really embraced it, uh, especially the professional surfers, the, the Kai Lennies and the Koa Smiths and um, the Carissa Moores and, um, you know, all the you know, Kelly Slater, all the people that we've worked with um, over the last few years have just really embraced that surfers are, canaries of the oceans, ambassadors for the oceans. And we have a responsibility to take that 
at passion and channel it in the direction of, of a healthier supply chain. And there's just a unique opportunity where they could get connected to a company like Atlantic that actually had the opportunity to, to have an impact. Um, and so that was sort of the birth of a new earth project. Um, people ask me, where did that name come from? Um, I just finished reading Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, which I highly recommend. And um, so that book had a huge impact on me. It's you know all about how to recreate a more beautiful world. Um, through personal healing and collective healing. And I felt like that's what this really was. This is about uh, a big collective healing that has to happen in our world um, that I believe, you know, human beings collaborating together can 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 absolutely do. Well, it, it's so beautiful. And it, it seems like there's like three parts to it, education, uh, legislation, and uh, the practical application. And the practical application part of it is really, I believe, where you specialize in. And I'm looking at on the, on the website for all the different uh, products that, that you've created, and they all have this uh, fiber-based system uh, incorporated into it. So it's anti-plastic, and it's not really a recycling mission, but more of a, a, a mission where the, pro the, the packaging biodegrades over time. It, do I have that right? Well, I mean, yes, you know, sort of, there's a little more nuance than that, but like, so we sell packaging into different areas of the supply chain. So we sell a lot of packaging that is just being utilized between businesses, like businesses shipping big pallets of good goods from a manufacturing operation to a distribution center where the packaging is removed, you know, in that lane, you know, recycling and creating closed loops is a lot easier. Um, it has to be done. Um, but you know, we don't see nearly as much leakage in B2B packaging. So where we identified where we see a lot of leakage is in business to consumer packaging. It's the stuff that ends up at your house. It's the stuff that gets shipped to you via e-commerce, or it's packaging that you go to the grocery store and bring home or a big box store and bring home. And, you know, in that lane, there's a lot of single-use plastic you know, a lot of single-use plastic, single-use plastic, flexible packaging, our fle flexible pack plastic like bags are typically not curbside recyclable. Um, and if they do end up in the environment, they don't break down, you know, and we know that in the direct-to-consumer lane, about seven to eight percent of all packaging uh, that ends up at your house ends up in the environment. Um, so that was where we really tried to focus on fiber-based packaging, as you, as you just mentioned, uh, for two reasons, primarily. In fiber-based packaging, which is paper packaging primarily in this country, but you know, there's a lot of there's other types of fiber, hemp fiber as an example, or grass fiber. And so you're seeing more and more products uh, come to market. Mycelium, which is like mushroom fiber, you know, there's more and more of that coming to market. But fiber, we recycle really well in this country. So every blue bin in America, you well, you can put paper in it, you know, because there's a huge demand by the paper industry for that recycled fiber. So that's the biggest part is like, we want to send stuff to your house that we already have the built-in infrastructure for recycling and paper checks every box. Uh, the other thing is if it's paper or fiber-based, if it ends up in the environment in eight to 12 weeks, it's going to break down, you know, in almost any, any uh, environment. And so that's pretty simple to me. <laughs> we recycle fiber really well in this country and we know some of it is going to end up in the environment. And at least if it does, 
it's a, a natural product that's going to be quote earth digestible is the word that we like to use. So um, that's why we really leaned into fiber-based packaging in the direct-to-consumer route. Now, there are other plastic packaging products that we think are really viable and, and, and good, you know, um, a lot in B2B packaging where, you know, we don't necessarily want to get out of plastic because there are certain types of plastic that are really, really efficient, you know, and um, but we want to be sure that we're collecting that stuff and having it recycled. So um, ultimately, whether it's direct to consumer or between businesses, what we're really trying to, to produce is circularity. You know, we want to go from a linear form of an economy where we pull resources from the ground, we put, we produce a product that produces waste and we put it back in the ground. That's very linear. You know, in, in circularity, you, you begin to look at all the waste that you produce as actually as a resource that can be utilized again. So we're just trying to create circularity, but again, uh, as it relates to direct consumer packaging, my perspective is that we don't recycle plastic very well in this country and we're a long way from ever recycling it very well. And we have to acknowledge that if it's direct to consumer, you're always going to have leakage into the environment. It's just a reality. It's going to happen. And so in every application that we can, we should be trying to transition to products that will break down in the environment, you know, um, the biggest challenge in that arena is food packaging by far, you know, like because food packaging, so much food's pa packaged in plastic for food safety reasons, for shelf life reasons. Um, and so uh, over the next, you know, whatever decade or more, you know, that's where you'll see a lot of innovation in packaging is in, in food packaging because um, that's going to be a that's going to be a heck of a challenge. And wh where on the spectrum do, do you think we're, we're falling right now? Are we like a quarter of the way there? Are we halfway there as far as meeting the goals that you that you see us needing to meet? You know, I have never been asked that question. It's a good one. I would say this in what I call protective packaging. So when you order something from a dot com, from an e-commerce company, um, the biggest one starts with an A that we all know. Um, the, the packaging that goes inside the box, the protective packaging to keep the products from shifting around that has traditionally been things like air pillows, bubble wrap, um, polystyrene foam, you know, all of that stuff is not curbside recyclable. And if it ends up in the environment is bad news. I, and, and we have already transitioned some really large companies away from all of that type of packaging to fiber-based protective packaging. Um, Williams-Sonoma being one of the biggest. Uh, Williams-Sonoma, they're, they're in our sustainability report. Uh, we were able to eliminate close to 400,000 pounds of single-use plastic annually for them. And so now all of their products come in fiber-based packaging. Um, and so to me, I mean, if a brand as large as Williams-Sonoma can do it and is diversified, so can anybody else. Um, so to me, like that's the low-hanging fruit. You know, those are those are not terribly technical applications. You're just trying to protect products from getting broken in shipping. Um, so parcel shipping, I think we're 2% of the way there. But I think in three to five years, we can be 90% of the way there with a little with a little will. Uh, on the food packaging side, you know, we're barely scratching the surface. We got a long way to go. Um, so I think it, it really does depend on the specific applications that we're, we're talking about. Um, and, you know, then, you know, you've also got beverage, you know, which is a huge, you know, vertical in, in and of itself, single use beverage containers, 
um, and and then the food service side too. Um, takeaway, you know, to go carriers and things like that. So there, there's a lot of movement in that direction as well. Uh, I would say in the food carrier world, the takeout, you know, carrier world, you know, maybe we're 20% of the way there. But, um, but um, again, I, I think I'd probably look at it more in, in terms of technology. We have the technology and protective packaging for parcels to make the shift. We have the technology and food service for the most part to make the shift. We don't have the technology in direct food contact, you know, for things like vegetables and raw protein like beef and chicken and pork. Like those are the applications that have the most work. And out of the two ways to get there, I, I see there being um the gas as the as the money, if it's if it's cost effective, then you can get it there. And then there's the legal if if laws are passed yeah. on onto companies. Um it, do you do you view a a, a the two-pronged approach there, or do you see like one more powerful as the other? Ultimately, the thing I think that is the most powerful is consumer demand. You know, like let's use the surfing community as an example. Like if everyone in surfing said, I'm not going to shop with brands anymore that ship single-use plastic to me. You know, like I'm not going to buy a surfboard if the company I'm buying it for is going to wrap it in single-use plastic. You know, I'm only going to shop, shop with companies like Pazel or Album, you know, like some of our customers who have, who have made these shifts. Stewart is another one, you know, and you start rewarding the companies that are making the investments in ethical packaging, you know, that I think has the opportunity to make the biggest shift. And, and it goes for not just in surfing, for, for you know, and young people today, millennials in particular, you know, studies show that they value sustainability more than brand, you know. And so whether whether the brands are acknowledging it or not, they are being judged ethically on their packaging every single day. And that's not going to change. That's only going to grow. And I think that has the opportunity to have the biggest impact. Nothing will shift away a company operates more than consumer demand. Um I will say, though, on top of that, um, legislation, I think, plays a pretty key part. Um, legislation is almost like an accelerator. Um, and, and we need an accelerator. You know, we need a few accelerators. And I think that EPR legislation, um, which stands for Extended Producer Responsibility, um, it's popular all over the world. It's popular in Canada, all over Europe and Australia. Um, and it's beginning to take hold here. Um, the most significant EPR law passed in California last year, SB 54, um, it's not in effect yet. It, the law is passed, but the, the, the law doesn't really go into effect probably until 2026. And basically what that law will do is it will put fees on the most problematic packaging, the stuff that's the least recyclable, uh, that's the most likely to end up in the environment. Um, and in many cases, it's also, excuse me, um, in many cases, it's also the cheapest. Um, and so one of the reasons some of this real problematic packaging continues to be utilized is because it's so inexpensive, you know, and you can't blame brands for that. You know, they're trying to produce products at a most competitive number out there. And, you know, if they can package something effectively in a really inexpensive packaging, they're going to tend to do that. But EPR says we're going to put fees on that type of packaging if it's environmentally problematic and it sort of evens the playing field. So some of these alternatives 
that historically have been more expensive all of a sudden, you know, will look more competitive because of the fee structures that are being placed on on single use plastic. So um, I think I think done well and intelligently, EPR can be a great lever to pull. Um, but, you know, packaging super complex It's a very diverse, um, different applications, different industries. And so how well EPR is legislated and how well the eco modulated fees uh, are constructed, I think will be will have a huge impact on how successful EPR can be. Um, but it's one of the reasons that we're working really hard to have a seat at the table with the legislator legislatures that are implementing EPR to be sure that they're getting a lot of impact from packaging professionals um, to understand, you know, where the low hanging fruit is and where the potential pitfalls can be. Um, is, but no, is I, this... I love your question. I mean, ultimately, it's a it's an all hands on deck. You know, we need consumer demand. We need the packaging supply chain innovating more sustainable packaging every single day. And we also need legislation supporting that transition. Are you focusing on a state level or a federal level with, with these ambitions? Both. I mean, right now, most of the legislation is at the state level. Um, so, you know, Maine has EPR laws. Colorado has EPR laws. Uh, Oregon has EPR laws, you know, it's it's typically more of your blue states, but that's starting to change. Um, even North Carolina has debated EPR, Texas has debated EPR, Maryland just passed an EPR law. So, I mean, it is starting to change. Um, what I like to say is like plastic pollution might be one of the only issues in America that's pretty nonpartisan. You know, there, there's not a lot of politicians promoting more plastic in the ocean. Um, it's one of the reasons I actually think this is a great issue to, to really rally around. It's, it's something that we can all agree that we need to fix. Uh, we have different strategies for fixing it, but it, at least there's a center point that says everyone agrees that plastic pollution is a problem and we need to do something about it. But, um, but most of the EPR laws are at the state level right now. Um, I, I am meeting with a lot of federal politicians as well. I do believe you are going to need to harmonize EPR across the country. The last thing we want is you know, the EPR law in North Carolina being radically different than the one in California, being different than the one in Texas, being different than the one in Illinois, it becomes impossible for consumer products and retail companies to manage all these different fees and all these different geographies. Because, um, you know, a lot, in many cases, they're, sh they're shipping from one massive distribution center to half the country, you know, and so we need a harmonized EPR structure across the entire United States. Um, but we're a pretty good ways from that happening. Um, but I do believe that's where we'll have to go eventually. Well, it seems you're the man to make this happen. Is there a, a political future in, in your um, uh, future, do you see? <laughs> um, that's not that's not on my current radar. Um, it's not it, it's been suggested a few times, but no, I'm I'm really focused on the on the mission that that um, that we have at hand at Atlantic. Uh, I love this organization. This organization has been, you know, a, a part of the fiber of my family for generations now. Um, and I feel like that the work that we're doing um inside the supply chain um is critically important. I mean, I actually believe. You know, we're being integrated in the supply chain where, you know, we're we're connected to the producers of packaging, we're 
uh, we're connected to the users of packaging. We're developing packaging. We've got this packaging solution center in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we're verifying and testing and developing new sustainable packaging. Like that's the area that I feel like currently I can have the greatest impact. Um, and if one day that changes and I feel like I can have a greater impact doing something else, maybe I'll consider it. But uh, but right now, I really believe that, that where we sit today and the work that we're trying to do uh, is the best chance that we have uh, as a as a country of, of solving this problem here. And, and we also have to solve it abroad as well. So, um, but yeah. So I, I have a, um, we have a mutual friend, Ben Bourgeois. And uh, over the weekend, um, I was at a, a party and he was there and I, I told him we were, uh, we were going to have this conversation. I said, uh, what, what's one question you would want to ask Wes? And he, he thought deeply, I mean, for a little, little, little over a minute. And he said, um, ask Wes, how did he raise his level of consciousness and how's that going? <laughs> So I have no backstory oh, for this. I, I I I didn't ask him to elaborate, but I wanted to uh, to to put that down. Um, first of all, I, I I'm a huge Ben Bourgeois fan. That is a, that is a gem of a human being. Um, if uh, yeah, everyone who knows Ben is is better for knowing him. Um, but um, no, I, it doesn't surprise me that Ben asked that question because that's the kind of thing he and I talk about quite a lot. Um. I ultimately believe that healing the planet is 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 completely um, interlocked with healing human beings. I, I think in order for us to really solve these big global problems, there is there is a level of inner healing, spiritual healing that has to happen. You know, because ultimately, for me a lot of these realizations about my roles and responsibilities in fixing this problem came from deep spiritual work and beginning to understand that all life is sacred, you know, and the fundamental, I believe the fundamental meaning of life is life. <laughs> like life is the meaning of life. And as intelligent beings on this planet, we have, a God-given responsibility to be great stewards of this planet, not to conquer it. We're not here. Manifest destiny is not is not is not the is not the deal. This, this is about being in harmony with life. This is about being in balance with life. And I learned that through a lot of indigenous wisdom, um, and you know, working in those indigenous communities um, with indigenous medicines. Um, that expanded my consciousness and allowed me to better understand my role in what I like to call the ecology of souls, you know, and, um, you know, I, I truly believe part of the human story is waking up to the sacredness of life and understanding that we are, we, we must save ourselves, you know, I think that is part of the human story is saving ourselves, using our brilliant minds to innovate our way out of these global problems to create better harmony for all living things on this planet. Um, and, you know, people ask me all the time, what can I do to contribute? You know, I want to be a part of this movement. I'm like, work on yourself first and foremost, like commit deeply to the personal work. And as you, as you do this personal work um, around your own personal healing, um, things like purpose, 
um, activation, like understanding what your unique role is, those things become more and more obvious. Um, and I certainly think Ben can attest to that. That story has been true for him. Um, but yeah, ultimately, we, we talk a lot about in order to solve these big global problems, we have to raise our level of consciousness beyond profit and loss. You know, it has to be a much more collaborative, um, harmonious, balanced um, perspective on, on what it means to be a human being. And, and, and one of the things I say a lot in, in the business, in the, in the rooms of business that I, you know, spend a lot of time in is, you know, life has to have a seat at the table. Life has to have a seat at our negotiating table. You know, when we are discussing whatever it may be, if it is going to impact, if, the, if human activities are going to impact life in a negative way, then we should really take a pause, you know, really take a pause, because I don't think any of us want to live in a world where we no longer have whales, you know, or we no longer have elephants, you know, like who wants to live in that world? But we're headed there, you know. Um, and, and we have to wake up to our roles and responsibilities as, as, as intelligent beings and stewards of, of all other life on this planet um, and commit to making the changes that, that need to be made. So long answer to your question, but maybe maybe Ben would approve of that answer. Well, as a super successful leader of a company that does very well, as well as a person with strong uh, convictions, I'm sure on a daily basis you have a um, conflict arise. How do you handle the conflict and do you ever uh, cede to one side or the other? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's some conflict. Um, I um, I get real quiet, you know. Um, I think the uh, one of the things I've learned is, is when conflict arises, if I don't have the right answer, the right answer is to wait. You know, like I, I, I've, I've really had to learn to create space um, for for the really difficult decisions. Um, certainly, there are times where you got to make a spur of the moment decision, and that's critical as well. But I found, you know, in most areas of life, it's not nearly as urgent as we think it may be. Um, and if you give things a little breathing room, um, you know, you tend to make better decisions. Um, but certainly you know, in the work that we're doing, we are pushing up against the way things have always been done, you know, and when you push up against the way things have always been done, there are always going to be forces out there that don't want to upset the apple cart, you know, and so what we've tried to focus on is the positive, you know, as opposed to saying, pointing fingers and saying, this is so bad the way we've done this, and, you know, shame on this company and shame on that company. And like, I think that's sort of a ridiculous way to operate and not very productive. What I think is a lot more productive is to say, let's create new products, new packaging products that are awesome, that are sexy, that are super appealing for the brands, that are super engaging for the customers. You know, it's like when we designed that S3 Pro shipping system for surfboards, you know, like it wasn't just about a fiber-based curbside recyclable shipping system. We wanted it to be better. You know, we wanted to protect the surfboard better. We wanted it to present it better to the customer. We wanted to reduce the dimensional weight so it was cheaper to ship. You know, we wanted to make it quicker to ship for the packers, you know, for the folks packing surfboards. So like we incorporated all those different things and we created a shipping system that is 100% curbside recyclable, 100% plastic free, 
And it also is better in every possible way than the old way of doing it. You know, and so to me, like that is actually the answer. Innovation, like create new products that are better and, you know, more appealing to consumers, market the packaging as part of the environmental ethics of your brand. And then the sustainable revolution doesn't become something that we have to do. It becomes a celebration. You know, it becomes our generation's moon landing, like the, the technology and innovation. Like I, I like to say, like we, we just have to do we have to create technology in the direction of life. You know, life, I like to call it life affirming technology, you know, and to me, like, that's exciting, that's engaging, you know, and, and so that's what we talk about, you know, we don't get too hung up in the, you know, where we've been, and, you know, it's more about where we're going, and, and so I think when you bring the energy of innovation, um, and the energy of, of developing uh, innovations in the direction of life, that creates a certain momentum that's, um, that's powerful and, and engaging for people. Well, I know you have a hard stop in a few minutes, and I have two last questions. One's a physical and one's a metaphysical. Let's go with the physical first. Um, I, I've been following you on the Instagram. You're you're very healthy. You're health conscious. What does a, a day in the life of Wes Carter look like as far as uh, staying healthy? I will say this. I think health is fundamental to everything. I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about with sustainability is creating a healthier supply chain, you know, and um I like to say, I think that sustainability is an outer reflection of an inner commitment to health and wellness. So when, you know, a lot of my awakening around the roles and responsibilities of Atlantic and um, how to begin to incorporate life into our decision-making uh, around the products that we were developing, it all started with a personal commitment to health and wellness, like I talked about earlier. Um, and so, um, that's remained pretty fundamental for me. Um, and it's not real complicated, but, you know, um, I get up, you know, early in the morning, you know, before the sun comes up where I have at least an hour of just time by myself. Um, and, um, I meditate most mornings, um, you know, meditation and prayer are a big part of how I start my day. Um, it sets the tone for my day. Um, it also allows me to, you know, connect with, um, something greater early in the morning is a really good time to do that. Your mind's so much quieter in the morning. Um, so that, that morning time is really sacred for me. Um, and then, you know, I incorporate a lot of different types of physical fitness. Um, I lift heavy twice a week. You know, I think for all human beings, lifting heavy is really important just to overall health and wellness and, and, um, being anti-fragile. Um, and then I, I try to incorporate yoga. I did yoga this morning. So I, I used to do it a lot more, but at least once a week now I'm in a, in a yoga studio. Um, and then, um, you know, just stay focused on a high protein diet. Um, eat a lot of fruit, eat a lot of high quality protein, try to stay away from sugar and carbs. Um, and then the other secret, and this is the biggest one, is just spend a ton of time outside. I mean, outside, 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 you know, like feet in the river, feet on the dirt, you know, um, I prioritize my time outside because it's honestly where I get all my inspiration. Um, it's where all the ideas happen, you know, and I think, I think it's important that people understand when you're trying to create, you know, that that's the place to gain inspiration. Like I don't create much from sitting in front of a computer screen, you know, like that's not a inspiring, you know, uh, place for me. So I try to prioritize time outside, breathing fresh air, um, time with my family, you know, all those kind of things. But yeah, 
clean water, clean air, um, family, friends, um, and stay away from the things that lower your vibration, you know, stay away from alcohol, stay away from hard drugs, you know, um, all that stuff is just ultimately going to take you to a place that you don't want to go. Great, great advice for everyone listening. Uh, so the heart of this show is aesthetics of water, the water, the, the, the water and what they give to us visually. Um, what is your favorite kind of water to be in as far as the aesthetics go? Thinking wind, thinking light. Oh, man. Um, well, I like to be in salt water. Um, I like to be in fresh water, too. But, man, if I'm, I'm, I'm pretty partial to salt water. And I think, um, to me, there's nothing uh, more special than being somewhere tropical where you're dropping in on a pretty large wave and there's white sand below and super clear water. And like, you can literally see through the wave, um, you know, and, and you get a lot of that in the Caribbean and in Central America and certainly, you know, in places like uh, the South Pacific, but that sort of crystal clear, you know, see through the water as you're dropping in on the wave is, is, is about as good as it gets. So I think that would be my top pick. I'll follow up to that. What, where would you go if you could just hop, hop out that door where you are right now, I believe in South Carolina, probably, uh, and you can go anywhere on the planet and catch that wave. Where would that wave be? The mental Oz. Do I have the this men, right? That that, is that where this all started? I, I've been doing my research pretty well with you. And it seems like you, you, you had a lot happen there mentally. Yeah, you know, that was a pilgrimage of sorts, you know, like, um, I went for my 40th birthday, which is a pretty big marker. Um, and my brother went with me, and he's 10 years younger than me. So his birthday and mine are actually pretty close together. So I was turning 40, and he was turning 30. And, um, you know, we're pretty average surfers. So going all the way um, to Indonesia was a lot of trip for us. But, um, but yeah, that, that was a that was a sacred few weeks, you know, like it was, you know, arguably the most beautiful place I've ever been um, to surf, certainly. Um, incredible quality of waves. Uh, we stayed on a boat the whole time, so we were moving around a lot. It was just a, you know, no cell phones that work there, so you're pretty disconnected from the, the world. Um, and it was also the place where I saw a lot of plastic pollution, you know, and it was like, damn, like this is literally like the most amazing place I've ever been to surf. It is spectacularly beautiful. And there's really not any people here. You know, like there's not like an no industry here, but there's plastic pollution everywhere. It's coming from other places and it's polluting these beautiful places. And I think that pilgrimage over there to surf the best waves in the world, but also see the other dark side, you know, the the juxtaposition of the beauty and the ugliness um, stuck with me, you know, um, and um you know, the realization that if we don't, if we don't make these commitments, that places like that will be ruined. Many places like that have been ruined. Um, and we have it in our power to fix it, you know, but it has to happen. It has to be a systematic change. It's not going to be changed by individuals. And I'm all about individual change. I mean, if, if you can use a reusable water bottle, you absolutely should. You know, if you can limit single-use plastic and re and use reusable products, you absolutely should. But ultimately, the supply chain has to provide materials, products, packaging to consumers that are easy to recycle, that break down if they end up in the environment. You know, it's on the companies. Um, and 
I also think it's on the companies to support conservation worldwide. You know, like I think conservation has to become a more fundamental part of all of our, um, you know, sustainability efforts as organizations. And it's why we support at Atlantic a lot of, you know, organizations like the Surfrider Foundation, like Wild Aid, uh, like Space for Giants. Um, and locally here, I work with the Low Country Land Trust and the Greenheart Project. We do a lot of philanthropic work around sustainability and conservation because I think that's that has to be fundamental as well. We've got to fix the problem. We've got to turn off the tap. But then we've also got to protect all these vulnerable areas and allow these vulnerable areas to recover. Um, and conservation and stewardship is how we do that. So we're certainly trying to model that at Atlantic. Incredibly inspiring. And we have uh, 60 seconds before you have to leave. And I finish all the podcasts with the question, what's the meaning of life? You've you've touched on that, but I, I'd like to bring it up one more time. Wes Carter, what is the meaning of life? I believe that life is the meaning of life. <laughs> I truly believe that um, we are walking through the miracle every single day, you know, and I actually believe a big part of the spiritual journey and a spiritual awakening is awakening to the beauty that is all around you, the consciousness that is all around you. Uh, um, that's certainly been the journey for me, uh, understanding that all life is sacred and um, and the, the world around you has tremendous gifts and um, it's just a matter of raising your consciousness and your vibration enough to be able to hear um, the subtle tones and the subtle messages that, you know, I believe God is whispering to you all the time uh, through the miracle that is life. Uh, and I think, you know, human beings are, we get too in our heads, you know, we, we try to think that it's something way more complicated than that. But um, I ultimately think that the meaning of life is life. And I believe that the way that we access that is through ourselves, like ultimately, like trying to be the absolute best version of you, um, not trying to be anybody else, you know, um, just working on expressing the gifts that you were given to express uh, in the fullest way that you possibly can. So um, it's worked for me so far, and I've watched it work for a lot of other people as well. And um, so that that's that's the path. Wes, your your mission is noble. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And thank you very much for joining us on this episode 26 of Speaking from Water. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I know you're going to be motivating people from time to come as they, they listen to this in the future. Well, thank you, my friend. I really appreciate you having me. And um, a big shout out to all your listeners. And um, yeah, if, if anybody wants to learn more, um, you can follow me um, on Instagram at Wes M. Carter, uh, also at A New Earth Project. Um, and then you can visit our website as well, anewearthproject.com. Uh, I will plug this last little piece. We've got uh, the second season of our documentary series, Journey to a New Earth, that will be coming out in early February on Amazon Prime. So keep an eye out for that. I'm sure we'll announce it online as well. But uh, some really cool stories. We're working with Burton Snowboards a lot in season two and helping them with their sustainability initiatives. So um, from sea to snow. Well, just one final note, all your media that you're producing is just so highly fine-tuned. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Very inspiring. And it really dives deep in, on a very ar visually artistic level 
everything Wes has been touching on t- today with the best pro athletes in the world, uh, Kai Lenny, uh, Kelly Slater, and uh, of course the great Ben Bourgeois. I I know I've been extremely uh, just in all uh, leading up to this this podcast. So thank you again, Wes, again so much. And all these uh, links will be below in the description. And I hope you like and subscribe to this podcast, Speaking from Water. With that said, I am your host, Sean Rutke. Wes, I hope you have a great day. I hope your family uh, has a very Merry Christmas, uh, your wife and, and two lovely children. Respect. Thank you, brother. Be well. Have a great day.